Welcome to the church family that is lifting lives through living love, inspiring hope, filling with faith, and transforming our world. These recorded messages are made available so that you might have additional opportunities to stay connected with us, and then you might learn and grow in your faith. God bless you as you hear the word today. And now, the message. Our scripture today is from Judges 4, 1 through 16. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Herosheth Hagoyim because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried out to the Lord for help. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abunam, and Kadesh from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zabalan and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and give him into your hands." Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There Barak summoned Zabalin and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under under his command. Deborah also went up with him. Now Haber and Kenite, the Kenite, had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Za'ananim, Kadesh. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abunam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Herosheth Hagoyim to the Kishon River all his men and 900 chariots fitted with iron. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Herosheth Hagoyim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. A few weeks from now, uh, I will be joining 30 other people from our church in running for uh, at, at the Indy Monumental as part of Team World Vision. We have 25 people from our church that are running the half marathon. Six of us are running a full marathon. I am among the half 
marathon people. Uh, and just a reminder, we're doing this to raise money through World Vision for clean water in developing countries. And so if anyone is here today or joining us online that would like to support a member of our team, we would love to have your support as we get ready uh, for that big race. Now, we've been getting ready for a long time, right? Like it's, the training started back in July and yesterday was the 10-miler or 20-miler for those who are running full. Um, but anyways, the, where I want to tell the story is from two weeks ago when we were running eight miles in our training. And I don't know, this particular day when I went out to run for eight miles, I started off, felt really good the first four miles. Like I was just chugging, like, like best pace I've kept in a long time. And then I guess I probably spent too much energy because the last four miles coming back was just totally brutal. Five, six, I was, I was slowing down. By the time I got to mile seven, I was just plodding along. I don't know if you've ever been there as a runner, but like it was just like I was just didn't have a lot of energy. And I was listening to a, like a Peloton program because I needed that coach in my ear trying to encourage me. And he was saying all these motivational things. And I was just cursing him in my head because I didn't feel the way he wanted me to feel. And then a certain song came on the coach's playlist and it changed everything for me for the final mile. I'm going to play just a little snippet of the song so you guys can get a picture of what I was listening to on the Monon Trail that morning. Do you recognize it? Surely now you, and as soon as I heard it, this music come on, like it's like a little jolt of energy, like the, the little bit of adrenaline. And I, I go from like plodding along to suddenly like I'm, you can sing along the do 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 do's, right? It's kind of a Tennessee, you know, the same feeling I had watching Tennessee play yesterday, you know? And then here they get the big, ah, ah. And then so like, so I'm listening to this, right? And, and I went from like, to suddenly I'm going down the, the, the I'm dancing down. There. I was like, where have all the good men gone? And where are all the gods? And where's streetwise Hercules to fight the rising? And I'm like punching, right? Where is the white knight upon the fiery steed? And late at night I toss and I turn and I dream of what I need. And what does I need? I need a hero, right? I'm holding out for a hero to the morning. Like, like that's, I mean, that's how I was going down the, the, you know, the Mona. I'm sure I looked ridiculous, but it made the last mile, like, bearable, right? <laughs> but I would contend to you that that is the theme song of the book of Judges. It's not just Bonnie Tyler's song. It's Israel's song. They needed a hero. Now, if you've never read the book of Judges, it uh, falls between Joshua and first and second Samuel. And so you have this story, which we've been talking about in October. Moses leading the people out of Egypt to the promised land. And then with Joshua, they go into the promised land. Kind of out of breath right there. I think I need a hero right now. Anyways, so Joshua is about the three centuries between the people entering into the promised land, conquering all the Canaanites, and when the kings of of Saul and David and Solomon and all them come along. And in that three centuries, there is no identified leader, no single person that the people of Israel could look to. There's not even an organized government. They really exist as kind of a collection, a loose collection of tribes. 
And so what happens is, from time to time, during that stretch of three centuries, whenever there's a problem, the people would cry out, we need a hero. And God would provide a hero, and the names of those heroes were the judges. Now, when you hear the word judge, what do you think of? I mean, I think of that guy from Night Court, or Judge Judy, or even Judge Reinhold, like someone in a robe with a gavel who hears cases and you know, resolves disputes. That's what a judge is, but not in, in the Old Testament, not in Hebrew, because the Hebrew word for judge is shofet, which can be translated as judge, but more often is translated in the Bible as leader or ruler. It's a military leader who would respond to some kind of outside threat. He would rally the people of Israel to expel whoever was going against them. And there's this pattern in the book of Judges that kind of goes like this. It starts when the people sin. They turn away from Yahweh and begin worshiping other gods. And then God gives them over to foreign kings who oppress them. And after a period of oppression, in today's story it was 20 years, the people repent, return to God, call out for help, we need a hero, God sends someone to deliver them, and then they have a period of peace that lasts for about a generation until the people forget again and they turn back to other gods and the whole cycle repeats itself again. Now there's 12 judges in the book of Judges. Deborah is the fourth. Before her came Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. So, you know, more names, Don, for you to add to your scripture reading. You know, and it's funny, we call our kids Deborah. We don't name our kids Ehud or Othniel or Shevgar, do we? Right? But they came before her and, and they fought off foreign enemies. Othniel, he, he fought against the Mesopotamians from the Far East. And then Ehud fought against the Moabites, the Near East, present-day Jordan. And Shamgar fought against the Philistines, who are on the west coast, invaders from Mediterranean. And then comes Deborah. And in Deborah's time, the enemy doesn't come from outside Israel, but the enemy actually comes from within. King Jabin of the Canaanites. Now, if you remember, the Canaanites were the original inhabitants of the Promised Land that, you know, the, that, that, that Joshua and the Israelites you know, knocked down all their cities, took over their territory. In fact, if you go back to Joshua chapter 11, we read about a king, Jabin, who reigned in Hazor, that Joshua put to the sword as part of taking over the northern part of Israel. And so it's very likely that this king, Jabin, is his namesake, his grandson, his great-grandson, some descendant who has arisen to power again and has, and has acquired control over all of northern Israel. Now, how did he acquire this control? Because this King Jabin had 900 iron chariots. This is the beginning of the Iron Age. And so having iron access to iron, to use as weapons and tools, that kind of technology would give you a huge advantage in battle. In contrast, Israel did not have iron. Judges 5, so I should say, explain this, Judges 4 tells the story, Judges 5 is like a victory song, kind of retells the story in poetic form. And so Judges 5 lets us know that among the 40,000 in Israel, there's neither shield nor spear to be seen. So Israel is going against the 900 iron chariots of King Jabin 
without swords, without spears, without shields. They're, they're going against with sticks and stones against a mighty army. You can see why they were crying out for a hero. And what kind of hero did they need? Well, I'm not going to sing the song again. I don't want to lose my breath again. But you got Bonnie, what Bonnie Tyler tells us. He's got to be fast. He's got to be strong. He's got to be fresh from the fight. He's got to be sure. And he's got to be soon. And he's got to be larger than life. That's the kind of hero that Israel was looking for. And the story of Deborah is an interesting story because God provides for the people a hero, except it's not the hero that they or we might expect. Let's start for the fact that the first hero in the story that is mentioned is Deborah, a woman, not a man, a actual judge, not a military leader. That was what Deborah was. She was an actual judge. She sat under a palm tree between Bethel and Kadesh, and she heard the people's complaints, and she resolved disputes. Judges 5 calls her the mother of Israel. Like, so I think of like the same way a mother like has siblings coming, like decides and resolves the disputes. That's what Deborah did for the people. She was not a military leader. However, she was a prophetess. She's the only of the 12 judges referred to as either a prophet or prophetess, which means that she can speak for God. And in that capacity as one who speaks for God, she calls to a man named Barak from the, land, from the area of Kadesh and calls to him and says to him, rally 10,000 troops to Mount Tabor and go against Sisera and God will give you the victory. So now we finally get to the hero of the story, right? Brock, right? He's strong and sure and fresh from the fight and larger than life. Surely this is the hero that Israel is looking for. Except he doesn't really act that way at the beginning of the story. When Deborah calls to him, he replies and says, I will only go if you go with me. But if you don't come with me, then I'm not going. He puts conditions upon. He hesitates to answer the call. He, he certainly doesn't feel sure or larger than life or strong or fresh from the fight. Like he's, he's not so sure. So Deborah replies to him and says, okay, I surely will go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead you to glory. In other words, you are not the hero of the story. God's not going to give you the glory. Instead, the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Deborah, perhaps, as the hero. So, true enough, you can see the blue lines. You know, uh, uh, Barak gathers to himself all the people of Israel there at Mount Tabor. And meanwhile, Sisera goes to the Kishon River, and gathers at Megiddo. Now, you may not know what Megiddo is, but it's actually a very famous place in antiquity. And what happened is there along the Kishon River, that's also known sometimes as the Jezreel Valley, through that valley passed a major trade route. So whoever controlled the valley controlled the flow of trade all the way from the Far East into the Mediterranean. And so countless battles were fought for control of Megiddo. In fact, so many battles were, took place in that area that it came to be known as such a place of battle that at the end of the Bible, 
When God is describing the, the final battle that would take place between good and evil, between the angels, the host of, the, of heaven against the demons uh, of, of the wicked one, where does that battle take place? In Megiddo, except in Greek, it's Armageddon. So if you ever heard that Armageddon, that's why, because that's where the final battle is going to take place in Megiddo. And that's where the battle takes place in today's story. So there's Barak and Deborah atop Mount Tabor. All the people are gathered below, all the enemy in Megiddo and the Kishon River, the valley below. And there Deborah says to the people, you know, she prophesies, says, up, for this is the day on which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. The Lord is going out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 warriors following him. And sure enough, they won the victory. But they won not because of their own strength and their own might, but they also won because of an act of God. For at that time, the, God sent a flood, a torrent, a rain, we don't really know, that filled and overflowed the banks of the Kishon River Valley. And so the whole valley, as you might imagine, turned into mud. And what do we know about Sisera's force? 900 iron chariots. And they were all stuck in the mud. So what had become his strategic advantage suddenly became his undoing, his trap. He, his, his soldiers couldn't go anywhere. The Israelites overwhelmed them. They retreat on foot all the way back to Heroseth Hagoyim, which is also uh, another name for Megiddo, and except for the general of the army, Sisera. He doesn't lead the retreat back. Instead, he slips away from his army and he goes the opposite direction. You can see that little dotted line all the way north to Zananim. I'm not much better than you are, Don, at pronouncing some of these. But then he gets up there. He comes across a woman named Jael. Now, Jael is the wife of Heber, the Kenite. And, and, and they're in Kenite, they were not Israelites. They were a different tribe. They related their, uh, their heritage back to Moses' brother-in-law, but, but not to Abraham, okay? And they settled in that valley, and they were known as iron workers. That was what they did. That was their skill. That was their trade. And it says there was peace between King Jabin of Hazor and, a clan of, and the clan of Heber the Kenite. And so it's very likely that Heber and his clan and his household, that they were the ones who built or maintained the iron chariots that the Canaanites rode into the valley. So, so that's why Sisera goes there for, for, for refuge, right? Because this is, you know, he, he's on his own, so he goes to an ally. And when, when Jael sees him running away, she says, come on, turn aside, come into my tent. I will give you shelter. I will protect you. Have no fear. She covers him up with a rug, she gives him something to eat. He says he's thirsty, so she gives him curdled milk, which was thought to be like a, a mild sedative back in those days. It puts him to sleep, and then while he's asleep, she takes a tent peg, puts it to his temple, and hammers it home all the way to the ground. Gruesome? Yeah. <laughs> Morally questionable? Yes. That she received someone into her tent, promised, have no fear, and then killed him while he was sleeping? Morally questionable? Yeah. And yet somehow, she ends up being the one hailed as the victor. 
as the hero of the story. She's the one who kills the big bad witch, the one through whom God achieves God's victory. So, it's an interesting story. The people cry out, we need a hero. And God sends first a judge, Deborah, prophetess, then a general, Barak, but it's neither the prophetess, the judge, nor the general, but a woman who is a member of an enemy clan that furnished the, the enemy with their chariots. She's the one who emerges as the victor, the hero of the story. So what does this mean for us today? Let me suggest three separate readings that I think all kind of build on each other. First, first reading is that the leadership in this story is shared. Barak, Deborah, and Jael. It gives us a model of, of more is accomplished when leadership is shared. Because each of them brings something different to the story. Deborah is the judge, the leader. She's the one who crafts the battle plan, who calls people to action. Barak is the courageous general who leads people into battle, who trusts and fights for God. Jael, she's the shrewd one who for whatever her motivations may have been, she, she may have been acting just to protect herself, you know, but for whatever reason, she's the one who strikes the final blow, and all of them get the glory. You know, some scholars, they read this story through the lens of honor and shame, and they say that actually, you know, what Barak did by refusing to go to Mount Tabor unless Deborah went with him, that that was a sign of his lack of faith, lack of trust. And so Deborah responded to him by saying, I'm going to take your glory away and give it to someone else. And maybe that was the case. But here's the thing. Barak didn't seem to care that his glory was taken away. He was more than happy to share it both with Deborah and with Jael. The reason we know this, as soon as the victory is over... In chapter 5, he joins with Deborah in the victory song, singing God's praises. And the two of them together sing about Jael, and they say, most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women, most blessed. Glory is shared all the way around. It reminds me of that old adage, you've probably heard it before, I think it comes from uh, Harry Truman, that it's amazing what you can accomplish if you don't care, who gets the credit? And so this story, I think, is unique among all the Old Testament stories where the battle, the victory, and the glory are all shared equally among everyone who has a part in the story. And so if you're facing a battle in your life today, let me just ask you, with whom are you sharing the battle? If you're going it all alone, you're missing out on the strength, the opportunity, the heroes that surround you. A second reading emphasizes not just the shared leadership among Deborah, Barak, and Jael, but the unexpected nature of their leadership. Like Barak should clearly be the hero, and yet he's the biggest footnote of the story. You have Deborah, who's a judge, but she's a female judge. She's the only female judge in the whole history of the book of Judges and, and even you know, all of Israel's history. And then, of course, you have Jael. Like, if you were to line up all the people that you would think of who are going to get the glory for God's victory on this day, surely it would not be this non-Israelite woman who is the wife of the enemy. Surely it wouldn't be her, and yet that's who God uses 
to accomplish his will, which tells us that God can use anybody to accomplish his purposes. And not only that, but God delights in choosing those whom the world has cast off and said they're not important, they're not useful, they're not great. That's who God says, I want on my team. And this was incredibly good news, especially to the writers of the New Testament who, who glory that, that, you know, that the gospel found a footing among those who've been cast off by society, those who are marginalized, those who were written off as sinners or lepers or unclean or dirty Gentiles, those are the ones who, who open their hearts to receive God's good news. So Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he says, let's go to the next slide, he says, says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. God chooses the lowly and the weak and the foolish because that's where his love is most fully and completely shown. God's economy, God's standard, God's politics are not the same as ours. And he can use anyone and frequently does use the least likely person to display his love, his grace, his power in the world. And that gets me to a third reading, which is just this, that at the end, the hero of the story is not Deborah or Barak or Jael. The hero is God. The battle belongs to him. God chooses the lowly things so that we might not put our confidence in the strength and might and charisma of others, but that we might trust only in God and know that he's the hero of our story. As I was writing this sermon, I... uh, that week I had a, a meeting at the Board of Trustees for the Indianapolis Children's Home. I've been serving on the Board of Trustees since April. Our own Jim Gentry has been the president of that board for quite a while. And, and, and since I've been on this, this Board of Trustees, usually our, we have meetings every two months. We just go to a conference room, sit in it, and, and hear reports from the wonderful dedicated staff at the Children's Home. But we don't have much interaction with the residents. Except this day, we are told at the end of our meeting, we're going to go to one of the homes that is being, you know, renamed after a donor uh, to the children's home, and and we're going to have a a moment of dedication, naming this home. And in that process, we are going to meet some of the young women who are residents in that home. Now, they wanted to prepare us for what this would be like and give us some instructions on how to interact with these young girls. In particular, they wanted us to understand that these kids were very intimidated to talk to us. That in their minds, we were the big wigs, right? And they said, so we've coached them on how to shake your hand and look you in the eye and introduce themselves. And we were told, you know, here's how you respond and reciprocate and here's the kind of touch that's okay and the kind of space and anyway. And I know from having served you know, just a handful of months even on the children's home, the kind of people, uh, the kind of children that they're able to take in, that these youth have all had hard lives, come from broken homes. Um, Some of them have been incarcerated. Some have been psychiatric uh, centers. Many of them fight 
depression, anxiety, other mental illnesses. Many of them struggle with history of abuse or addiction. And so when we went to meet these you know, kids going in, as we're walking into their home and they're all lining up and one by one they shook our hands and looked us in the eye and introduced themselves. And I thought just even that, the courage it took, yeah, I could tell for some of them it was quite hard just to make eye contact. But they did it, every single one. And we went into their, to their home and it was cleaned, like spotless, like better than my house ever looks, right? And they had a little table set up for a little reception and uh, Jim Gentry led the dedication service. He, he kind of said some opening remarks and one of the people from the Children's Home Foundation said some words about the woman in whose name, uh, Linda Myers, that the home was being named for. I wanted the girls to understand who she was. And then Jim gave a prayer, and the whole thing took about 10, 15 minutes or so, and then it was done. Except it wasn't. Because then one of the girls said, excuse me, can I say something? And she just said, I just want to thank you all for being here. And in that one sentence, I love that she did that, because she went from just, she, she was claiming, I'm a host in this space. I'm not a guest in this space, but this is my home and you are my guests here. So she went from guest to host, you know. She said, I want to thank you all for coming and thank you for everything you do for the children's home. And she said, and and you may or may not know this, I'm 15 years old and and I'm hoping to have a quinceanera party. She was uh, of of Latin descent. And, And then she said, and if we can have a quinceanera party, I'd love to have you all back to be part of that celebration. And I thought, it was just a beautiful little moment claiming ownership of her life, of being a host who can invite someone to a party where she's the, the guest of honor. And I found myself thinking about this story of Deborah and Jael. And I wondered if, if, I, if I, I didn't tell it to the girls that day at the children's home, but I wonder if they could hear it, if they would hear the good news. That no matter what battle, challenges they face, which are surmountable, I wonder if they could hear the good news that the battle belongs to God, that he's fighting on their side. I wonder if they could hear and receive the good news that God can use anyone to be a hero which means that it's not just that God can be the hero in their story, but that they could be a hero in God's story. Could they hear that good news? Can you hear it today? And if so, let's live it and proclaim it to all the world. Amen.